store on a country road Where all the farmers and the housewives go They sit and talk about the price of things They've never even heard Of Hello everyone and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Roy in the ABC original series, It's All Relative, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. Uh, I don't quite remember Roy. Roy? Uh, uh, well, the show oh, is that the show with uh, Lanny Clark? Uh, that is correct. Uh, it's All oh. Relative was a show that ran for one year on ABC uh, about a man who dates the adoptive daughter of a gay couple, which forces their very different families to learn to coexist. Let me tell you something. You, you work with a lot of different uh, casts when you go from show to show to show. I remember It's All Relative had one of the absolute best uh, main casts, uh, such Great people. I mean, Landy Clark was hilarious. Um, Reed I Scott, th- Maggie Lawson were also on the show. Yeah. And uh, I believe, uh, wasn't Harriet in that Harriet show? Harriet Harris, yes. Do you remember who she is, David, in my lexicon of film? Tick tock, tick tock. Remind me, sir. Memento. She That's played right. my she wife. She played your in wife Memento. in Memento. That's right. What a strange homecoming, because I thought she was already dead, but she was there, and just hilarious. And of course, when I did Mornings at 7 on Broadway, she was nominated for a Tony as well as myself, and guess what the big difference was? Tell me, sir. She won! Nice, nice. I should say, by the way, you thought she was dead, not because she's old, but because she you killed her in Memento, spoiler alert. I killed her in Memento, but she came back. Or did you? Ah. For fans of that movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah, maybe I could say that backwards and figure it out. Well, anyway, Stephen Tobolowsky, we find ourselves today in a uh, a part three, kind of, of a a multi-part episode arc. It is Uh, our travel trilogy. That's right. So if you are listening for the first time, we should, should say you should go back and listen to uh, Prehistoric Britain, which is another episode of the Tobolowsky Files, and Notes from the Frontier. Listen to those episodes for maximum enjoyment of the podcast, uh, of this episode, at least, that we're about to record. We are going to get shortly to some high-quality storytelling, but before that, we have some big news to announce today. And what is that, David? And that is that we are making a movie version of the Tobolowsky Files. Oh, this is such good news. When did we decide to do this? I don't know. It feels like 10 years ago, and we've been working on it ever since. Uh, no, listeners of The Tobolowsky Files, we are actually going to try to make a film version of The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, full disclosure, it is a concert film. It's not a dramatization of Stephen's stories. It is a recording of Stephen performing his stories in front of a live audience. Uh, I have seen this happen, and I'm sure many of you listeners have seen this happen too. It is a magical, theatrical 
experience. And, and, and I, I think we're, we're performing at the Moore Theater again. Isn't that true? That's correct. We are going to be at the Moore Theater uh, on, I believe it is May 3rd, Saturday, May 3rd at the Moore Theater. Tickets go on sale soon. We'll keep you guys updated about that. Uh, and that is going to be one of several shows that we'll be recording that's going to go into the film. But here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. We can't make this film alone. There is a substantial sum that we will need in order to hire a production company to shoot this movie. Stephen, I don't recall us ever uh, asking for money during the course of the Tobolowsky Files. We may have asked people to buy some of your books and so on, but I don't think we've ever put out the hat like we are doing so in this episode. (laughs) But guys... It's degrading. We have put out out dozens and dozens of episodes of the Tobolowsky Files for free, for download, All we ask is that you check out this Kickstarter, and if it tickles your fancy, give us a donation. And so you can do that, Stephen, by going where? Isn't that at stephentobolowski.info? That is correct, stephentobolowski.info, where you can find more information about this Kickstarter that we're running. Stephen, how do you spell your name for those who have no idea? That would be S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L-O-W-S-K-Y. Don't put an I there. It's a Y. There you go. Dot info. That's I-N-F-O. So go to stephentobolowski.info, and there's a bunch of Kickstarter rewards. The ones that I think will be of most interest to listeners of this show, for $15, uh, you will get a link to stream the movie when it premieres. For $40, you get a bonus episode of The Tobolowski Files recorded just for backers of the Kickstarter, delivered straight to your inbox. And for $60, you get two episodes of The Tobolowski Files, and uh, you get the streaming video in all those cases. This is, this is such a bargain, Stephen. We, we took the thing off where I'm going to wash people's car. Did we do that? Uh, you know what? I think that did not make the final cut. But. Uh. Thank goodness. In any okay, case, good. yeah. uh, you know, listeners, I, if even a small fraction of you uh, contribute to this Kickstarter, we will definitely have enough money to make this film. We hope that everyone who's listening right now goes to stephentobolowski.info, checks out the project, and we would love it if you'd help us make this movie a reality. But, you know, Stephen, I'm thinking to myself, like, watching you on screen, watching you at the more, listening to you on the podcast... It might be too much of a good thing. That's what I'm thinking. You may have a point, David. You know, my mother had various sayings about sweets, the most famous being, you could have too much of a good thing, including whipped cream. And if you substitute whipped cream for clotted cream, you have a clear picture of my mental health as we flew from Finland back to England, interrupting our vacation with yet another vacation. You know, at a certain point, you're not a world traveler anymore. You're a nomad. I displayed signs of mental deterioration. I was sick at the sight of our big green suitcase. I loathed my water-resistant camping clothes that were impossible to wash in hotel sinks because, of course, they were water-resistant. I started developing old man smell, even though I was only 35. It dawned on me that old man smell was never old man smell. It was water-resistant camping clothes smell because old people seem to buy water-resistant camping clothes at discount stores. I began talking to my laundry. I would say, you stupid stinking shirt. You're done when I get you home. You hear me? You're done. 
and then I would smile sadistically as I hung it up to dry in the bathroom of the Helsinki Hotel and whisper, and I'm not just going to throw you away. I'm going to burn you. I'm going to burn you up in the barbecue grill. I told myself that I was all right mentally as long as my shirt didn't answer me back. We landed in England. We got another rental car, and off we went. Our goal was to see parts of prehistoric Britain that we had missed our first time around. Anne motored on the main A road heading west from London. We flew past the exits of Salisbury and Stonehenge. The road became a metaphor for our memories. Our plan was to go to Wales and then north to Scotland. On my 35th birthday, we stopped at Stratford-on-Avon to bond with Shakespeare. I bought a complete works of the Bard at a bookstore in town as a present to myself. It was a special edition. It claimed to have the original punctuation. Now, for all you actors out there, I learned that when you work on Shakespeare, it's always important to look at a version with the original punctuation. In Shakespeare's day, they didn't have directors, and the direction was indicated in the punctuation. A period or a colon means full stop. A comma means a breath or no stop at all. Sections written in verse indicate a character had an education. If a character was written in prose, he or she was a commoner. I remember the excitement I had when I bought those volumes. I saw my life as being dedicated to working on great literature written for the stage. I never performed Shakespeare once in my career after that. I did use the books, however. Twenty-five years later, I was asked to read the role of Polonius in a version of Hamlet for a possible production in Los Angeles, and I felt such complete happiness as I finally pulled my original punctuation edition from the bookshelf. I was 35 again. I was standing in the rain of Stratford-on-Avon holding these books under my raincoat so they wouldn't get wet on the way to the car. A book provides more than what's between its covers. It's a relationship that stays with us for a lifetime. It is always faithful. And usually, it is kind. I bought Anne two sweaters in Stratford. They were knitted from the local sheep. The smell of those sweaters was so rich and beautiful. She wore one of those sweaters that afternoon in the rain, and as the day progressed, Anne smelled more and more like a sheep, which was a good thing. She filed the receipt for the books under business and the sweaters under gifts. And we drove away from Stratford in a downpour and headed for Wales. We drove into the Malvern Hills where Langland had his vision and wrote Piers the Plowman. You never know what's going to last from an encounter with a book. From Piers the Plowman, 40 years later, I still remember one very powerful idea. Don't judge others. Not because it's a bad thing to do, but because it's always a waste of time. You never know all of the facts as to why people do what they do, so any judgment will be wrong. That has proved particularly useful in Hollywood. As we climbed into the mountains, the rain turned into snow, and then it turned into the Donner Pass. We were in a swirling snowstorm. We were everywhere and nowhere. At its best, nature gives us the temporary feeling of timelessness. 
A snowstorm does for time what a ride at the fair does for gravity. Like a scene from The Wizard of Oz, we emerged from the storm and we were in a country called Wales. We noticed a wooden stand on the roadside selling odds and ends. Anne said, Stephen, can we stop? I had no objections. We weren't going anywhere in particular anyway. There were two young people working the stand. They were selling all sorts of trinkets and hippie-related paraphernalia. Anne found a ring, two braided bands of something that resembled gold. She said, Stephen, what do you think? I said, well, if you like it, we should get it because we're never going to find another one like it. Anne looked at the ring again, and in that look, she told me everything I needed to know. I turned to the young lady and said, how much for the ring? She said, 30. I assumed that meant it was worth 10. I said, we'll take it. She looked as surprised as Anne. The girl said, it's a beautiful choice. It's typically Welsh. The idea of something being Welsh excited Anne. She said, I like how simple it is. It seems timeless. Anne had no idea how prophetic her words were. When we got married in Memphis a year and a half later, we forgot to get a wedding ring. The judge told us that the ring we used in the service didn't have to be new. We could use any ring we like. Anne took the typically Welsh ring off of her finger handed it to the judge, who handed it to me, and it became Anne's wedding ring. Simple. Timeless. That night we ate at a Welsh castle at what they call a medieval feast. Medieval feast is a code for you're going to be eating chicken with your hands. The high point of the entire evening was when someone dressed like a jester introduced each of the dinner guests to a phony king and queen and their court. He would say, your majesties, introducing the Lord and Lady of, and then he would insert the couple's last name, the Lord and Lady of the Johnson, or the Lord and Lady of the Smith. Anne and I entered the feast hall, which was a large stone room with a roaring fireplace. The phony king and queen were seated on a platform at one end of the room. They looked like they had just escaped from the Renaissance Fair. We were led to the center of the room with the other diners. The jester held up a phony scroll and announced, Your Majesty, introducing the Lord and Lady of the Jeppa... 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 What is this? I leaned in to assist. Ah, jester, that's a T. Someone wrote J. The Lord and Lady of the Tuppa Jeppa... The Jeppa Wusk... Ah, jester, you're still saying J? There is no J. Lord and Lady of the Tuppa Jeppa... What kind of name is this? Polish, I think. Jester, allow me. I spoke directly to the phony king and queen. Excuse me, your highnesses. We come from the faraway land of America. The name is Tobolowski. The phony king and queen oohed and odd like we're the wise men coming to see the Christ child. Despite the difficulty with my name, no one in Wales had difficulty singing. Once dinner was served, everybody sang. They all sounded like Tom Jones, including the women. The jester, who had a spectacular voice, told me after the show that singing was genetic. The Welsh people were blessed with giant lungs, short necks, and strong vocal cords from generations of working in the coal mines. I was envious. The only genetic gift I inherited was worrying. 
We toured several castles in the area, and the overall impression I got was that people in medieval Wales spent a lot of time torturing each other. Every castle had its own torture chamber they were only too happy to show you. In modern times, we've sublimated this urge to torture and turned it into high school. I asked Anne when she organized her receipts, if she filed our tickets under M for museum or T for torture. She stared at me and said, R for research. The rain started again. Anne and I headed for the Lake District. We went to a pub for a late lunch. To fortify myself from the elements, I ate something fried and washed it down with something alcoholic. Anne took another approach to the weather. She decided to become part of it. She climbed up a hill outside the pub, and on the way up, she had a misunderstanding with gravity, and she fell. It was a long slide, lubricated along the way with piles of sheep shit. When Anne reached the bottom of the hill, she was unhurt, but her new sweater from Stratford-on-Avon was covered with green sheep slime. I tried to look at the bright side. I told her that the sweater was green to begin with. The sheep shit made it smell better in a sort of sheep-like way. My words only darkened her mood exponentially. Some people have a hard time being able to tell the difference between anxiety and problem-solving. I had to do something drastic. I said, baby, let's go to Scotland. The suggestion worked like a bucket of cold water. We have no place to stay, Anne said. That's why God created credit cards, I said. We'll be fine. We headed for Edinburgh. After the snow and the rain and the sheep shit, we needed to recover with a little luxury. I told Anne, we should stay at a nice hotel with normal-sized beds. We'll order room service. I said, we'll start a new trip with a new theme. Places mentioned in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Edinburgh's castle was where Malcolm lived after Macbeth was killed. The Caledonian is right across from the castle. It has four dollar signs by it in the hotel book. It's perfect. The Caledonian was beautiful. It had giant beds and bathtubs. It had snugly bathrobes and room service. Anne was luxuriating in the tub. I got on the phone to the kitchen and started ordering. I ordered trout almondine for Anne. I was feeling so good about life, I decided to order the specialty of the house. It was something I'd never heard of before, something called haggis. Anne overheard me order and jumped out of the tub. She shook her finger at me and said, don't do it. Don't do it. You won't like it. I spoke to the room service man. Uh, excuse me one second. My wife is saying something. Uh, yes, sir. I covered the receiver with my hand. I turned to Anne with some irritation. After all, I found this great place with the great bathrobes. I didn't want her tendency for caution to ruin my fun. What is it, Anne? I'm on the phone. You're not going to like the haggis. I pointed to it at the menu. It says it's the national dish. Well, of course it is, said Anne. Haven't you learned anything called a national dish is horrible? It's what people had to eat when everyone was starving. Go ahead. Ask him what's in it. Go ahead. I directed my attention to the room service man once again. Uh, excuse me. How do you make your haggis? Of the traditional way, sir. Sheep liver, heart, lungs cooked in the animal's stomach. We serve it with a dram of whiskey. Pause as I waited for my gorge to settle. Okay. 
I'll have a steak, medium rare, and send that dram of whiskey up with it. Yes, sir. Anne saved my life three times in our relationship. Room service at the Caledonian was the first. After a full night of recovery, we headed back into the unknown. Anne drove. I held the road map, which at this point was strictly a symbolic gesture. I couldn't read any of the names. Even with the weekend Finland, it didn't prepare me for Gaelic. We headed for a village named Ardnesaic, a town which could have been famous for being the word used in the finals of the spelling bee. We stayed at a lodge that used to be the headquarters of the Campbell clan. It stood amid forests of 200-year-old rhododendrons on the bank of Loch Awe. We were the only guests. A college girl ran the place. She said we might as well stay in the bridal suite. The three of us dined alone in the clan hall before a gigantic fireplace. Anne said she had never imagined any place as beautiful as this. The girl who ran the hotel said, I know, it would be easy to mistake it for heaven if it weren't for the midges. Uh, what are midges, I said. The girl smiled sweetly, biting flies. If you want to walk by the lake, start early. Once the sun comes out, they'll be out, millions of them, to bite your eyes, to fly in your nose, in your ears, they could drive you mad. Okay, okay, consider us warned, I said. We spent the night in splendor in a gigantic four-poster bed surrounded by windows looking out at the lake and gardens. The girl asked if we wanted her to do our laundry. (laughs) God sent us an angel. She said they had an automatic washer, but they still used the 18th century drying room. Our clothes would be ready in about eight hours. I never heard of a drying room before. It's fascinating. It's the size of a hotel room with stone benches and tables. It's heated to sauna temperatures by piping in heat from the fireplace. And all of our wet clothes were spread out on tables and benches. It looked like it was modeled on our room at the Hotel Helsinki. We took a morning walk through the gardens, through fields of wildflowers, through deep forests to the bank of Loch Awe. We got there just as the midges started to wake up, so we ran back. We packed our hot, dry clothes. We had a Scottish breakfast, which were eggs cooked with several infrequently used parts of a pig. We thanked our young hostess and headed off on our trip to see locations from Shakespeare's Macbeth. It was disappointing. Cawdor, Dunsinane, Burnham Wood have all been turned into pitch and putts. We headed north for the highlands. We landed squarely off the beaten track in Gerlach, a small, quaint village on Stroth Bay. We stayed in a hotel that rattled with every gust of wind from the ocean. We went to dinner. I asked our hostess what was good. Nothing really, but what do you expect? Look at this place. Where are you from? Uh, Los Angeles, I said. Good Lord, Hollywood. Do you know Clint Eastwood? Uh, Not personally. He's my favorite. If you run into him, tell him Dora from Gerlach says hello. I will. Dora asked us why we were there. Anne told her that we just stopped because we thought the town looked interesting. Dora looked at us in complete confusion. You're kidding. What are you two up to, touring the dreary corners of the world? She served us up some Laphroaig. I had never had single malt scotch before. It's like kissing a girl the first time in the backseat of a car. Explosive 
and unforgettable. Dora said that there are dozens of single malts. Each one is a snapshot of the microclime where it's brewed. The taste is specific to the rock, to the water, even to the wind. We warmed up. We asked Dora what people usually do when they're in Gerlach. She said, study a roadmap to find a way out. Well, we've got that covered, Dora. We're leaving tomorrow. What should we do while we're here? Dora smiled. You got me stumped. Well, you could go out to Red Point. I go out there and watch the sunset. On a clear day, you could see the Isle of Sky and dream about being there instead of here. Well, thank you, I said. Anne and I left for Red Point. One usually doesn't think of the midnight sun in Scotland, but it's close enough. It was after seven when we parked at Red Point, and we were hours from a sunset. The place was deserted. It was cold and windy, so we didn't venture outside. It was quiet. All you could hear was the wind against the windows. Anne asked, What are you thinking? I had no idea. It's a trick question. You only get asked a question like that if you're in a relationship. When you live alone, you never care what you're thinking. Instead of answering, I was silent. This was a mistake. After a few moments, my silence made Anne's question far more significant than it was. The longer I waited to answer, the more my answer of nothing seemed like an evasion. So I continued to be silent. I was silent for ten minutes, then twenty. Sheep wandered up and started grazing around our car. I remained silent. Anne was silent as well, waiting for an answer. Thirty minutes passed. Tension mounted. Then, without warning, one of the lambs outside of our car went nuts. He started bounding in every direction at once like he was on a pogo stick. He was bleeding at the top of his lungs. He wasn't in distress. He was celebrating. Maybe it was the wind. Maybe he thought that this day would go on forever. He was overwhelmed by the moment, and the higher he jumped, the happier he got. Anne and I started laughing. He crashed into the other lambs. They looked around mildly distressed, then went back to eating. Our lamb was not interested in food. He never noticed us. He was the incarnation of happiness. Anne and I laughed until we cried. Then Anne stopped. She held my hand and looked at me seriously. Let's call him Reggie. What? Let's call the lamb Reggie. He'll be our lamb. Sounds good to me. This is another side effect of being in a relationship. You end up with mythic lambs in your life. In my head from that moment on, Reggie has been with us. And he is always young. He is always joyful. He continues to teach about happiness. It's around us all the time. You just have to be quiet enough to see it when it happens. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. It's just there. Part of the landscape. It can fall into your life when you least expect it. There is no place I've ever seen that matches the beauty of the highlands. It was like being on another planet. The barren, windswept mountains, the peat bogs, the field of heather and gorse. Beauty is very personal. I think it reveals something about our character. 
For example, people who like the tropics love abundance. People who love snow-covered mountains in Norway are drawn to the idea of challenge and conquest. I was at a loss as to why I love the Highlands so much. We got back to the hotel. Dora gave me a clue. I told her about my love of the Highlands. She looked at me drolly and said, Ugh, that's too bad. Once you love this country, there's no relief for it except to come back. Well, do you love it here? Oh, I do. It's not the beauty of the place. It's the age. It's the oldest part of our world. Part of the original rock of the earth is right here in the highlands. It's pre-Cambrian. The only other spot on earth is old or parts of Labrador and Nova Scotia. A couple billion years ago, give or take, it used to be connected to Scotland before the continents began to drift. Oh, you, you like geology, Dora? Well, you gotta like something when you live up here, you go mad. Well, we just saw a sheep we liked a lot at Red Point. Yeah, a lot of the men around here like the sheep. It's hard on a single girl. As dear and depressed as Dora was, she may have put her finger on it. The reason I found the Highlands so beautiful was my innate love of antiquity. We said our goodbye and started to make our long journey back to Heathrow. I had Anne stop the car in a particularly desolate area, and I jumped out and grabbed rocks to take back home with me. Anne said, are you sure you can do that? Do what? Take rocks. Well, I'm sure I could take a few. It's a better souvenir than a kilt. And these rocks are from the beginning of time, baby. I don't know. They weigh a lot. And there may be a law against transporting soils to another country. There may be spores on these rocks that are dangerous. I tried to conjure a vision of Reggie dancing across my brain and said, It'll be fine, Anne. No one's going to care if I have rocks in my suitcase. <laughs> Look at it this way. The price is right. You don't have to keep track of any receipts. We don't have to declare them at customs or pay duty. We boarded the plane home with an extra 50 pounds of rocks. I forgot how long the trip was going home. 11 hours in coach. Coach is the genetic descendant of the beds we slept on in England, designed for people less than five feet tall. It was excruciating. No sleep. For entertainment, I closed my eyes, and I remembered Reggie. The stewardess handed out our customs forms before we landed and said, Are you going to mention the rocks? Uh, what? It might be better if you mention them in case they're illegal. Baby, the rocks are fine. I'm sure they're legal. I would mention them. Okay. So I wrote down rocks. Price, zero dollars. We got off the plane ragged and exhausted. I was drenched in old man smell. We got in line for customs. After waiting in line for 30 minutes, we finally made it up to the officer. He was a man in his late 30s who looked like Peter Tork of the Monkees. He looked at our forms. Uh, what's this? Rocks? Zero dollars? Uh, yeah, well, officer, I used to like geology, and they had some interesting rocks there. Well, you don't have to list the rocks. Only things you bought. Anne stepped up. Well, we didn't know if there'd be a problem with spores. The officer looked at Anne. No, ma'am. We don't care about the rocks. The officer stared at me and smiled. Hey, you're an actor, aren't you? 
even in my exhaustion, I could affect false modesty. Uh, yes, sir, <laughs> I am. The officer unzipped our big green suitcase. Well, you were out of the country a long time. Uh, yes, sir. Too long. Almost a month. Seems longer. The officer started slowly unpacking our suitcase and laying our clothes out on the floor. Doesn't seem like you bought much, did you? Uh, no, sir. We were on a budget. The officer looked up at me. The smile was gone. He was a man on a mission. See, we don't care about the rocks. We do care about marijuana. Ann and I froze. The officer pulled out a pair of my water-resistant camping pants. He slowly started going through the pockets. Now, if I went through all of your pockets, do you think I'd find some grass? Uh, no, sir. Nothing. Nope. You know, if I find even a seed, I could hold you two in custody for suspicion of drug smuggling? Anne turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, there's nothing anywhere. Officer, we have no grass. There is no grass. I look back at the line of angry people waiting to go through customs behind us. The officer caught my glance. Hey, don't worry about those people. I could take as long as I want to go through your things. See, we have a lot of actors coming in from overseas, and sometimes they decide to make a little extra money by carrying drugs. We don't like that. Well, officer, that's not me. He continued his searching in the lining of a pair of shorts I had. Well, that's good, but I'm still going to go through everything. Now, if there's anything you want to tell me, it'd probably be better on you if you told me right now instead of later. I stared at the officer. He picked up Anne's journal with the receipts and the pressed wildflowers. We both stiffened. He noticed. He held up the book and smiled. And what is this? Anne stepped up. It's my book of receipts from the trip. Really? He said with a cool sadism that came from years of watching reruns of Mission Impossible. Well, let's have a look. He opened the page to a pressed flower from the Uffington horse. This doesn't look like a receipt. Anne stepped up and said, it's a pressed flower. The officer stared at Anne, and he sniffed the dry flower. Anne protested, it's not dope, it's a wild flower. The officer broke off part of the flower and crumbled it in his fingers and sniffed it. Stop it, said Anne. Those are my flowers. He stared at Anne and turned a page. There was another flower. He reached down to sample it when Anne's stack of receipts fell out of the book and scattered on the floor. What happens next ranks as one of the scariest things I ever saw on earth. The blood drained from Anne's head. Her neck lengthened. Her voice dropped into a range only used by the minions of Satan. All right, enough, she said. Now you get down on the floor right now and you pick up every receipt. He froze. Then he looked at me. Hey, I had no help for him. Anne stepped up within striking range. Get down on the floor and start picking them up. I'm not moving here until you give me those receipts exactly in the order I put them in. That's a month's worth of work. Pick them up now. Another officer moved in to see what the commotion was about. Peter Tork looked to the other officer and stepped between them. It was starting to look like one of the more gruesome scenes from Beowulf. She stood over the officer and said, why are you looking at him? He can't help you. You pick him up. Like you said, you have all day. 
Well, so do I. I have nowhere to go. I'm in no hurry at all. The officer reached down and picked up the receipts and handed them over to Anne. She didn't touch them. In order! I said, I want them in order. The officer looked at me and said, get her out of here. You two, you two can go. I started repacking the suitcase. Anne yelled at me, don't you touch that suitcase, Stephen. I jumped back. Anne turned back to Peter Tork. After the officer finishes with my receipts, he's going to repack the suitcase neatly, just like I packed it. The officer had the look of a dying animal. I knew he had nowhere to run. I rushed in and threw the clothes in the big green suitcase. I grabbed Ann and said, hey, let's go, sweetheart. Time to go. Officer has lots of other people to torture. I pulled Ann out of the airport and into our car. We were on the last leg of our journey, the 405 freeway. Ann fell across my lap and closed her eyes. I stroked her hair. She smiled faintly. She said, How do people get like that? I said, I don't know, baby. I don't know. Probably not enough Reggie in his life. Probably. We won't end up like that, will we, Stephen? No, I said. How do you know? I said, because we're happy with a bag full of rocks and a book full of flowers. Anne smiled and said, that's true. That's a good start. Yes, I said. That's a good start. That was The Return, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we have a Kickstarter to make The Tobolowsky Files movie, which you can find at stephentobolowsky.info, stephentobolowsky.info. I thought it would be interesting to go down some of these rewards, Stephen. Uh, a couple of items on here I thought were interesting. Uh, you can actually get a VIP package to visit you backstage after the live show in Seattle. For $2,500, you're, you're selling a signed copy of the script for Groundhog Day. This is a copy that you received when you shot the film. Is that correct? This is a real copy. This is not the um, this is a, not a Xerox, Xerox copy. copy. No, this is made. the one that I used in the movie, yes. That is a great collector's item. And if you get that, you also get a copy to stream the film. But, Stephen, the fact that you still own that implies to me that you are probably some kind of hoarder <laughs> of some sort. You have some hoarding tendencies, I assume. I, I, think, I think the back house would be a testament to that. I mean, I keep every note I ever wrote in my – people wonder how I remember these things. It's because I, I keep notes from all time. But I have, yeah, the jacket from Great Balls of Fire. I, I, I mean, I have so much stuff. One other option I just want to make people aware of is that for $10,000 – uh, Stephen will go to your house 
and perform a live show for you of storytelling. Uh, private shows only, meaning no video recording is allowed, but this is something that you could pool together with a few friends for and make happen. Isn't that right? And, and I'm thinking seriously, it could be good for groups or uh, schools, things like that. P- people could get together and do it, and it would uh, be very doable, you know, kind of for groups yeah. or, or if you happen to be extremely you know, rich. If you happen to be an eccentric billionaire, we'll <laughs> yeah, also right. take your money. Uh, right. That will work. That's so right. a lot of cool rewards on here. Go to stephentobolowski.info to check them out. Stephen, other than the Kickstarter, which I have to emphasize is at stephentobolowski.info, how can people find more of your work? I think stephentobolowski.com. That's my little website, and you could find information about the Dangerous Animals Club, uh, you could find information about Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party. And then, of course, I'm on Twitter, at tw- Tobolowski on Twitter. Do you have trouble uh, saying your last name there? I, I do at this point it's in time. Rough. It's tough, and, and Facebook, I'm, I'm there on Facebook, Stephen Tobolowski on Facebook. So uh, Yeah, just go to Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski uh, to follow updates about the Tobolowski files and about the movie that we're making. Thank you guys for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We will see you guys later. Adios. For all the world to see, it never gets old, it grows and grows. Losing makes me sorry. You say, honey, don't worry. Don't you know? Don't you know I love you too And that's the way